from the audio archives of the Bible Study Hour. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the classic teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Have you noticed that although it was Jesus alone who could bring the dead to life, nevertheless, he delighted to involve the bystanders in the miracle? First, they were told to move the stone. After the miracle, they were told to unbind Lazarus. It's true that we cannot bring the dead to life, but we can bring the word of Christ to those who are spiritually dead. We can do preparatory work and We can also do work afterward. We can help to remove stones, stones of ignorance, error, prejudice, despair. And after the miracle, we can help the new Christian by unwinding the grave clothes of doubt, fear, introspection, and discouragement. Author, theologian, and pastor, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce began teaching on the Bible Study Hour in 1969. He went to be with his Lord in 2000, yet his biblical insights and in-depth teaching continue to encourage, equip, and edify believers. The goal of the Bible Study Hour is to prepare Christians to think and act biblically. On this edition of the Bible Study Hour, Dr. Boyce presents the message entitled, The Seventh Miracle. The seventh miracle recorded in the Gospel of John is that of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus, who is dead, came forth from the grave. Have you ever wished that you could see or experience such a miracle? Well, every child of God has experienced a miracle just like the raising of Lazarus, even greater. Jesus has called every believer from spiritual death to eternal life. Have you heard his voice calling you from the grave of sin and condemnation? The scripture text for this edition of the Bible Study Hour is John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44. Here now is Dr. James Montgomery Boyce with the message entitled, The Seventh Miracle. Have you ever found yourself in a dilemma, a box closed in with absolutely no way out, and then suddenly the doors were opened and all of life was before you again? If you've ever had this experience, or even if you haven't, you should be interested in our remarks today. There are such things as miracles, and properly understood, at least in Christian circles, we see them around us every day. We come in our study of John today to a story which deals with this very question. It's the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is the climactic miracle of John's gospel by any standard of measurement. Its position in the gospel alone indicates this, for it's the last of seven miracles, and it's inserted just before the beginning of the final week of Christ's earthly ministry. The length of the narrative, its 46 verses, and its detail also reveal its importance, for it's the longest and most elaborately described of the miracles. The results of this miracle are more momentous than those in any other sign, primarily in the increased determination of the religious leaders to eliminate Jesus. Finally, and most importantly, the deeper or spiritual meaning of the miracle is striking and is essential to the book's theology. 
Now, I need to say that each of the miracles has a deeper or spiritual meaning, but that this does not mean that they are any the less real miracles. The first of the miracles in John is the turning of water into wine at Cana. It's a small miracle, as miracles go, but it reveals Jesus to be the source of joy and of life in abundance. It concludes with the observation, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. The second miracle is that of the healing of the son of a certain nobleman. It shows Jesus to have power over human sickness, and, by extension, over that sickness of the spirit caused by sin. The third miracle is the healing of the impotent man. Here, the spiritual meaning of the miracle is obvious, for the impotent man is an eloquent symbol of the helpless spiritual state to which sin has brought all men and women. The feeding of the 5,000 reveals Jesus as the bread of life. The story of his walking upon the water points to Christ's power over nature. The sixth miracle is the restoration of sight to the man who had been born blind, and this shows the effect of sin on the mind. The sinner is spiritually blind and walks in darkness, and the need for Christ who alone can restore sight. This story is summarized in advance in Christ's great saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In each of these stories, there is a real miracle then, but we need to note that it is told by John primarily because of the spiritual meaning found in it. The same is also true of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the seventh miracle. Lazarus was certainly raised from the dead. It was a true miracle. In fact, as John indicates, it was the report of this astonishing miracle that led the religious leaders to the conclusion that they would have to dispose of Christ immediately. The miracle was real. But in addition to this, it is also a picture of how a man or woman who is dead in sin is brought to spiritual life by Jesus. And this, of course, happens today, many, many times, every day, and becomes a current expression of the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. We can study this story for what it has to teach about sin, faith, the power of Christ, and evangelism. Now, the story reads as follows. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? I think we should stop here, at least for now, because these verses contain our first great lesson. The lesson that Jesus had for Martha, therefore for us also, is that in spiritual matters, believing is seeing. He said, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? These words, seeing and believing, sound quite natural to us because of the expression, seeing is believing. But we can hardly miss the fact that Jesus puts it the other way around. Seeing is believing, we say. Believing is seeing, says the Lord Jesus. And of course, both are right. 
so long as we realize that in our expression we are talking about human affairs, while Jesus in his expression was talking about a relationship to God. In human affairs, the expression means simply that men and women are untrustworthy. Some are more trustworthy than others, no doubt. These are the ones we seek to work into positions of responsibility and authority. But even here, we are not entirely believing. So corporation heads are bonded. Builders are bound by contracts. Union heads signed work agreements and so on. Take as an example a case in which a personnel representative in a company is interviewing a young applicant for a job. Do you think you can do the work? The representative asks. Certainly, the young man answers. It's obvious that he doesn't lack confidence. Do you know what is involved? Yes, I've read all about it. And besides, I have had two years' experience doing the same thing in Phoenix. And did the job go well there? Very well, is the reply. And I know I can do well here. Well, the personnel representative is obviously pleased to see the young man's confidence, but... In spite of this, he does not take his profession of ability quite at face value. Instead, he writes for references. Moreover, he does not promise that the job will be permanent even if he offers it to him. We'll see how it goes, he says. In other words, seeing is believing. And this is right, because in human affairs, performance has not always followed promise. We want references, or, to put it in other terms, we want collateral before the loan is made. Well, we ask, then, how can Jesus invert the adage and say believing is seeing? There's only one answer. It is because he is not speaking of men, but of God. Men are untrustworthy, but God is not like men in this respect. God is not a man that he should lie, the scriptures tell us. God has never made a promise that he has not fulfilled fully. Consequently, to believe God is to place oneself in the place of blessing from which one will certainly see all that is promised in due time. Now, it's interesting that the statement of the Lord Jesus Christ links seeing the glory of God, which refers here to the raising of Lazarus, to such faith. And the interesting thing about this is that Martha apparently did not have such faith, nor did anyone else, so far as we can discern from the narrative. When Jesus said, Said I not unto thee, he was probably referring to his message to Martha through the messenger, recorded much earlier in the chapter. But when Jesus finally arrived at Bethany four days later, Martha did not expect the resurrection. Moreover, even after Jesus had talked with her face to face, she did not expect it. For when Jesus said, take away the stone, Martha replied that this would be unwise and that the body would undoubtedly have begun to decay. She did not expect a resurrection. She could only think that for some reason Jesus wanted to look at and mourn over the body. The crowd that was standing by did not believe in the possibility of a resurrection either. For most of them were saying, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Where then was the faith that was to result in seeing God's glory? Again, there's only one answer. For if such faith is not seen in Martha, 
or Mary, or any of the others, the only person left in whom it can be seen is Jesus. He is the one who believed and who therefore saw God's glory. Consequently, his trust in God at this point is to become a model for our own. What is it that makes Christ's faith in the Father what it is? Or, to put it in another language, what is the nature of Christ's faith? There are several answers in this story. First, it is personal. That is, it's not faith in some abstract concept or some mere truth that Jesus knew about God. His faith was in God himself, which he indicates by calling him Father. The story says, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father. Is your faith like that? Is your faith personal? Faith in the biblical sense most certainly involves propositions, but it is not propositional alone. It is faith in a person. So, in the matter of salvation, we should be able to say, Lord Jesus Christ, I love you and want you to be my Savior. Or, in the matter of prayer, we should say, Father, I lay such a need before you. Second, the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ was a perfect or totally trusting faith. This is indicated by the fact that Jesus offered God thanks for the miracle even before it had taken place. We find him praying, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. I do not know personally how close we can come to that total belief of the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, we often fail to express confidence that God will hear and answer our prayers when we should. And on the other hand, we often pray in ways that are mere presumption. Sin keeps us from praying perfectly, yet we should grow increasingly toward the point of such perfection. Dr. Harry A. Ironside used to tell the story of one old man who had grown very far along the way. He was a Scotsman who on one occasion was making his way by foot to a certain synodical meeting of the Free Kirk in Aberdeen. On the way, he was overtaken by a young theological student also on his way to the meeting, and since they had much in common, they continued on their way together. At lunchtime, they turned aside to a grassy embankment to eat their lunch, first thanking God for the food. They had good conversation. Then, before they started out again, the old man suggested that they each pray, asking God for what they would need that evening. The young student was somewhat embarrassed, but he agreed, and the older man prayed. He had three requests. First, he reminded the Lord that he was hard of hearing, and that if he did not get a seat well up toward the front of the meeting hall, he would get little from the sermon that evening. So he asked that a seat be kept for him. Second, he told the Lord that his shoes were badly worn and that they were hardly fit for the city. He needed a new pair, although he did not have money to buy them. Finally, he asked for a place to sleep that night, for he knew no one in the city from whom he could ask accommodations. As he made each request, the old man thanked the Lord in advance for answering them. Well, the theological student was aghast at what he considered to be the impertinence of the old man, and he determined to check up on him later to see what became of his prayers. That night they reached the meeting a bit late. The hall was crowded. There was not a seat left. The student thought, well, we'll see now what becomes of such presumptuous praying. However, 
Someone came out, and the old man managed to squeeze into a place near the door, where he stood with one hand cupped to his ear, trying to hear. A young lady in the front row turned and saw him. She called an usher. Sir, she said, my father has asked me to save this seat for him, saying that if he should be late, I should offer it to someone else. Evidently, he has been detained. Will you please go and offer it to that old man who has his hand to his ear and is standing just inside the door? The usher followed her instruction, and in a few minutes the old man had his first request answered. The time came in the meeting for prayer. Now, in Scotland in those days, some persons always knelt for prayer, while others reverently stood. The old man was the kneeling kind, the young woman was the other. Standing thus beside her guest, and looking down, she could not help noticing the condition of his shoes. Her father, it turned out, ran a shoe store. So, after the meeting, she politely raised the subject and asked the old man if she might take him to her father's store, though it was closed for the night, and give him a pair of shoes. So, petition number two was answered. Finally, while in the store, the young woman inquired where the old man was staying that night, and he answered that God had not yet shown him the room. Well, she said, I think we have the room for you. The Reverend Dr. So-and-so is to use our guest room tonight, but he's telegraphed to say that he's not coming. Will you use it? Well, he did, of course, and the next day, when the theological student inquired how the old man had made out, he learned the answers and found that God is not indifferent to the thanks-filled and therefore believing prayers of his people. Finally, we notice that the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ was public. That is, he did not express his faith quietly and in a corner, but rather audibly and openly before men. In this respect, we find him praying, I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people who stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. If we do likewise, at least on occasion, then others may also believe as the result of our indirect testimony and God's action. Well, the prayer of Jesus leads up to the moment of the resurrection itself. And this is now before us. Having finished his prayer, Jesus called to Lazarus in a loud voice so that all could hear. Lazarus, of course, would have heard even if he had whispered, Lazarus, come forth. The story continues by reporting with great understatement, and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a cloth. Jesus said unto them, Loose him and let him go. Well, here is the climax of the miracle, and it is here that it must be applied spiritually. The resurrection of Lazarus happened, but we notice that it's also what happens spiritually whenever Jesus speaks to a lost and fallen child of Adam. According to Scripture, the one who is without Christ is dead spiritually. He's dead in trespasses and sins, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians. As such, he is helpless. There is nothing he can do to improve his condition. But Jesus comes... Jesus calls, he calls the dead one by name, and the one who hears his voice responds and rises from the grave to meet him. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, 
and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Perhaps he's calling some today. Do you hear him? Will you follow? Finally, the story says this to Christians. Will you play your part in Christ's miracles? You say, but what do you mean? Haven't you said that the work is Christ's alone? No one can raise the dead but Jesus. Yes, that's true. That's true. But have you noticed that although it was Jesus alone who could bring the dead to life, nevertheless, he delighted to involve the bystanders in the miracle? First, they were told to move the stone. Then, after the miracle, they were told to unbind Lazarus. It's true that we cannot bring the dead to life, but we can bring the word of Christ to those who are spiritually dead. We can do preparatory work, and we can also do work afterward. We can help to remove stones, stones of ignorance, error, prejudice, despair. And after the miracle, we can help the new Christian by unwinding the grave clothes of doubt, fear, introspection, and discouragement. The miracle is Christ, but there is work for us to do if we will do it. Will you? Jesus used Ananias to reach Paul, even after Paul had been struck down on the road to Damascus. He used Peter to reach Cornelius. Philip preached to the Ethiopian. Do you doubt that he would use you if you were ready to do such work? Then get ready or be ready. As Arthur Pink says, there is no higher privilege this side of heaven than for us to be used of the Lord in rolling away gravestones and removing grave clothes. I'm talking today with Dr. D. James Kennedy, pastor of the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church of Coral Ridge, Florida, and author of the very well-known best-selling book on evangelism called Evangelism Explosion. We were talking about the growth of his own church and lay evangelism, which by his own testimony is the key to that growth. Dr. Kennedy, many people, ministers, among others, are concerned about getting the laymen in their churches to become active witnesses for Christ. And yet, in practice, very few laymen are doing anything. And I would say, I'm sure you would too, the majority have never won a person to Christ. Why do you think this is so? I might uh, just insert here that I'm happy to be with you since I personally came to know Christ as a result of the radio Bible study hour, and I'm very grateful for that. And it was when Dr. Barnhouse was the radio speaker. Yes, it was. I think that the thing that is most overlooked, as I've talked to laymen and ministers around the country, I've said to them that they've been with their ministers in worship services and teaching classes and committee meetings and all sorts of affairs, but the one place that the layman is not with his minister is when the minister goes out to witness. Because though we may tell people that they should do it or even try to instruct them how on Sunday and be ever so faithful in doing it during the week, they do not understand the classroom instruction because it doesn't touch the main problem of their fear. I think that uh, what is needed is to get a few people who are willing to take part in this. You don't have to get a whole church a minister said, how do you get a whole congregation enthused to do this? You don't have to. All you need is one or two people to start with and train them and then 
get a couple of more and multiply in that way. And you've been helping and not only laymen, but also pastors to do this, as I understand, through your work in Florida. Yes, we feel that the pastor is the key to the situation since Christ says in Ephesians that he gave the pastor to the church for the purpose of equipping the layman to do the work of ministry. I wonder if you could give uh, an example or two of laymen who were very reluctant to witness at one time for whatever reason and uh, yet came to discover the freedom of speaking about Christ. All right, I'll be happy to. I think immediately there comes to mind a a young 35-year-old man who uh, was estranged from his wife. We talked to both of them. They each accepted the Lord. They got back together, and he came into the program. He went through the training, went out, tried to witness, and was completely unfruitful. He dropped out, and a few months later, he came into the office to see me, and he said, I'm just not cut out to do it. And I said, well, Doug, that's not true. None of us is cut out, but God can recut us. So come back in and let's give you more adequate training. So he went back through the program again. Then he went out and he began to lead people to Christ all over the place. One evening, he visited a retired sergeant and his wife. They uh, both accepted Christ and said, how amazing what this young man did in coming and sharing the gospel. And she said, I could never do that. And she didn't even try. But about a year later, she started studying the materials that we have. And uh, she decided that maybe she could. And she started going out uh, sharing Christ. In three months, she led 39 people to the Lord. She since started a group of young people. They had first six and then a dozen and then 50 and then 100 and 200 and 250 young people over for dinner at her house every week. Mm. A score or so have gone into the ministry. And hundreds and hundreds have been won to Christ through two people, both of whom said they could never do it. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. Boyce. And now, our Father, we thank you for the power that is in the word of the living Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the miracles that happen daily as he speaks to men. Help us to do our part in such miracles, to bear the word of Christ to them, and to help those who respond. For we pray in the name of our living Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus called Lazarus from the dead and called upon others to remove the stone at the tomb and to set Lazarus free from his grave clothes. As Jesus calls people from death to life today, he calls upon you to roll away those stones and unwrap those grave clothes. If you would like an audio copy of this edition of the Bible Study Hour, call us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888 and request the message entitled, The Seventh Miracle or simply ask for message number 1323. You may also write to us at the Bible Study Hour at Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. This message and additional teachings by Dr. Boyce are accessible by visiting us online at www.alliancenet.org. And when you visit our website, or when you call or write, be sure to investigate and inquire about the many resources available from the Bible Study Hour and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, including daily devotionals, information on upcoming conferences, and in-depth written and audio Bible studies, including a vast number of studies by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Again, our contact information, write The Bible Study Hour, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA 19103. Call 1 800 488 1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org. 
Your prayers, encouraging letters, and financial gifts all enable the Bible Study Hour to continue its outreach ministry. Once more, today's edition of the Bible Study Hour is entitled, The Seventh Miracle, message number 1323. Thanks for utilizing the Bible Study Hour to be a part of your Christian growth. Join us again as the teaching of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce prepares us to think and act biblically.